Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. You're listening to my Nostalgia Podcast. This is Jack's Throwback Attack. Okay, so it's a great pleasure to have with me Simon Buckley. Hello. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you're listening. And how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. Good, good, good. Thank you for uh, taking part today. It's, it's a real great pleasure to be speaking to you. Well, my pleasure. I'm glad you're still interested in uh, my work and what I've done in the past. Indeed, indeed. Always, always, uh, always been a, a bit of a nostalgia, what would be the word, nerd, I suppose, about ch- children's television <laughs> and puppetry and that kind of thing. So, it, I, don't, I don't know what, you, what the equivalent is of a train spotter for puppets on TV from children's programmes in years past, but I'm sure somebody somewhere will come up for a, a collective noun for people who love that sort of thing. To maybe, maybe that's your task when we finish this, is to, to come up with a proper term for people who... Uh, are obsessed by puppets from yesteryear. I'll have to have a think. Have a think about that. I shall you know, a, you know what a collective group of puppeteers is called? No, I don't. Ah, dolly wagglers. Okay. Uh, this, 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 <laughs> that was the disrespectful term uh, used about us on Spitting Image, and it's sort of stuck in many, in many circles. We're dolly wagglers. Uh, of course, we're not no such thing, but uh, it, was, it was a term we quite liked. I've never, I've never heard that phrase before. So thank you for uh, teaching yeah. me something new today. <laughs> there you go. And uh, so, I mean, yes, you have worked on television and film for many years, doing a variety of different puppet characters. But I've got to kind of go back to the beginning. How does someone get into that world of work? Because it's, a, it's a very unique job profession. Yeah, it, it is an unusual thing, and it literally is down to my grandparents buying me and soup glove puppets when I was about four or five. And I don't know why of all the toys that I had, they just captured my imagination, both watching them when my brother would operate them and also performing them myself. And um, then I saw some string puppets in a toy shop in Chester near where I grew up when I was about seven or eight. And my parents bought me one for Christmas. It was the wizard. And then I saved up my pocket money and bought a frog and then a wolf and various other characters. And I used to take them into school, and one of the girls in my class was having a birthday party, and her mum said, um, could you come along and do a show? So sure enough, I turned up and I did a terrible show. I have no idea what it, really what it was like. I know that my wizard played the xylophone and an ostrich danced in a tutu, but any more than that is a blur. And at the end of it, she gave me a pound, which was very nice. And the next night, a complete stranger phoned up and said to my dad, hello, I'd like to speak to Simon Buckley, the children's party entertainer. And he kind of blinked a bit and said, well, you can, but he's only nine. And this lady said, that's all right. He's only a pound. So not because I was any good, but just just because I was cheap, I got my next children's party booking. And in the year I turned 16, I did exactly 100 shows at birthday parties, fates and fairs and all the rest of it. So because of being a sort of amateur puppeteer doing kids' parties, various professional puppeteers heard about me and encouraged me to uh, join them as a, a professional dolly waggler. Now you know what the term is. And um, I became the first person, in fact, to study puppetry on an Education Authority grant at the Midland Arts Centre in Birmingham, which in those days had its own puppet company uh, directed by John Blundell, who's most famous for having created many of the Thunderbirds puppets and sculpting Parker, the head of Parker. And so I worked with them for a while, studied with them. Then they gave me my equity card and a job worked in the theatre with them, did a 1,000 performances in 12 different shows between Birmingham and Hong Kong and back again. 
And then at the end of that was asked if I would like to work on Labyrinth, the David Bowie Muppet movie, because they were using they were looking for people with experience of string puppets. And people remembered that that's how I had started as a nine year old. So I worked on that. And then working on that, met people who said, oh, you should audition for Spitting Image. So I auditioned for Spitting Image and got that. And then after a few years on Spitting Image, various other things came my way. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Very humble right. beginnings, but it all paid off eventually. <laughs> it all paid off. And I'm sorry, I realise I've just said all that without barely breathing, I think. So over to you now. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because um, recording this this new series of podcasts, you're the second person I have interviewed in, in recent times who worked on Labyrinth and Spit and oh. Image in quite quick succession. Um, the other person being a guy called Francis Wright. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I know Francis. We've worked together many times. In fact, I think... Labyrinth would have been the first time that I met met Francis. Yeah, it would have been. Oh, good. We then worked together on a fabulous BBC series, which he did for, oh, more years than I can remember, called You and Me, which you no doubt will have talked about. Yes. And that was hugely successful with two characters, Cosmo and Dibs. And then for the last two series, uh, it was just two series, they added in two other characters, Baxter, who was a grumpy old granddad from Birmingham, and Spike, a very perky little boy, and I, I was Baxter, the grumpy granddad from Birmingham. And I'd worked with Francis on a couple of other things, but that's when we, we really got to know each other well. And he was, he was incredibly gracious being on a series that was, you know, he was well established in as a puppeteer. And to have two other characters come in, you know, many people would have felt, you know, not necessarily threatened by that, but a bit missed about that. Uh, but actually, Francis was just fantastic to work with. He's, he's a great guy. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. He does uh, come across as a great guy. And, um, I mean, what was it like working on, you know, like such a, a show that, even though it's finished such a long time ago, still uh, very much in, in pop culture, and that being spit an image, you know, what was it like? Uh, <laughs> um, it, was, it was extraordinary. It was amazing to be part of something that everybody knew and everybody had an opinion on. That was, that was the first amazing thing. You know, it was you'd do because it would go out on the Sunday night, and on the Monday we you know, would finish recording it in the earlier days. Finish recording at Sunday lunchtime, and the show would be going out that night. And on Monday, people had already seen what you'd done, and were talking about it, and everybody had an opinion on it, which is quite different to doing a movie which you finish and then you know a year later people finally get to see, um, and you finally get to see and forget what you've done in it even half the time. So it was great to be involved in something that was so alive and so current. Also amazing to do something under which there was so much pressure um, because we were working to deadlines to get the show out that night. Um, and that was, that, was, that, was, that was great fun. Um, and just some of the stuff we did was completely insane. I mean, there were the, you know, the, the, all the scenes around the cabinet table, which were political and what have you, which were, were fun. But it was sometimes the other stuff. I remember doing a, doing a song around the time of the World Cup. And I, I think it must have been in Italy. I'm guessing this because we, we filled the stage, and it was the biggest stage at Central Television in Birmingham, with an enormous mock spaghetti bolognese lifted up on platforms. And we then puppeteered through holes in this spaghetti bolognese. And I just remember us, all the puppeteers, being in these sort of um, uh, like decorated overalls with hoods, crawling on our bellies underneath the platforms, then pop up through this gloop that was dropping down on us as directors were shouting and hollering instructions and we couldn't quite work out what the hell was going on. And it was just insane. And I just remember crying with laughter 
uh, and being surrounded by people, you know, in, in holes a few feet away, also just convulsed and trying to get this wretched sketch done and just thinking this is just nuts. So we had pressure, we had filth, uh, physical dirt. Uh, uh, it was just bonkers, uh, but it was great to be part of. I, I, I miss it, actually. It was a, yeah, it was, it was it, the happy days, shall we say. Good fun, good fun. And uh, th- th- you actually said about, you know, um, lying down and like being in uncomfortable places to do puppetry. I mean, is it quite physically demanding? Because I don't think a lot of people realise the, the places that you have to kind of fit into and hold your hands up in the air the whole time. You know, it must be quite uh, stressful. I think most puppeteers have pretty bad backs um, or suffer because it's a very lopsided career very often. And people don't, didn't appreciate with spitting image how big and often how heavy the puppets were. Um, and it's uh, I remember my dad, you know, as a kid telling me about when he was in the Navy and the punishment was to hold a broom out in front of you, you know, or two brooms and hold your arms still. And you think, well, a broom's not very heavy. But actually, if you're holding it in, in, a, in a set position for any length of time, it does become tiring. So, you know, even sooty after a while will give you a bad back or, you know, make your shoulders ache if you're holding it in a, in a set position. So it is very physical. Um, and obviously different kinds of puppetry employ a different kind of physicality. So people, for example, in the stage shows like The War Horse are using their bodies as puppeteers in a different way to somebody who's doing a more Muppet-type uh, TV puppet. Uh, but yeah, it is surprisingly physical. Yeah, it is. Um, well, I imagine it is. <laughs> Apart from, uh, like yourself, falling around at uh, parties and buying puppets on as a child. Um, can't say I've ever done it professionally, but I can imagine it's uh, yeah. quite a yeah, physically it demanding role. Yeah, and, and you're not only trying to um, you know, uh, work from an uncomfortable position very often, but you're also having to produce very frequently a voice when you're lying in a, in a difficult position. Um, you're also trying to see a monitor, and if you're working outside, the monitor is the small TV screen that shows you what the camera is seeing, so you can therefore see what you're doing. Um, and if you're working outside, getting, you know, trying to be able to see that in broad daylight is, is often quite difficult. And you're trying to remember physically what you're doing and not go your head, get your head into the shot. Or, you know, there, there's a thousand and one things to, to think about, whilst often you're in not the most comfortable of positions to do it. And it is important, and, and we, I've worked through all our projects quite hard to try and make it as physically comfortable as possible, um, because then that does release you to concentrate on what it is you're actually doing. But sometimes you just have to go, do you know, the only way we can do this, particularly if you're filming on location, is for me just to suck up the pain and just grip my teeth and get through it. I, you know, I wouldn't claim to be the kind of the Tom Cruise of puppeteers who does his own stunts. But, you know, I remember doing a kids TV show up in Yorkshire and we filmed out in the most stunning countryside. But at times we were, lit, you know, literally harnessed to rocks and hanging over the edge of quite sheer drops in order to get the shot that the director really wanted. And uh, part of your brain is, you know, engrossed in what you're actually doing. But there is a part of your brain just thinking, please, God, help me get through this and get out of here. You know, I want to make it back to the hotel at the end of the day. <laughs> Oh, good stuff, good stuff. Um, I, I'll move on to uh, kids' TV in a moment, but there is one, because I had a look through your website, and just incredibly long, uh, the amount of stuff that you've worked on, so to fit it all in would be a pretty much impossible task, but <laughs> yeah. some of the highlights I think we can definitely uh, fit in. And one of them being, it was one of my favourite films at Christmas time, and that's The Muppets Christmas Carol. You worked on that. I, I did. I mean, I was, I was a small part in it. I was on, Christmas, uh, on Muppet Treasure Island for several months, 
Um, but on uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, I just had the privilege of being there for, I think it was only a, a couple of weeks doing some of the background uh, characters. You know, most of the Muppet characters are played by American puppeteers who've played the parts and know the characters and have done the voices since the beginning. People like Dave Golf and people like that. Uh, Dave was famous for doing um, Gonzo, amongst others. And um, so those uh, puppeteers very naturally would be kind of at the forefront doing the main main roles. And then British puppeteers would assist them because often it would take two or three puppeteers to work one puppet and, and then do all of the background characters. Um, and so I was often, I was a bit of background. I remember doing some singing grapes for the Swedish chef. And I think I did a hand for Fozzie at one point and then a couple of carol singers out in the snow and, but, you know, wonderful to be part of something that is so iconic um, and, that, and as with Labyrinth, you know, that, that people just have such happy memories of that film. And, and every year, I think, I see on Facebook, you know, people saying, Christmas has started. I've just watched Muppet Christmas Carol. It is a great, it's, I think it's one of the best. As a puppeteer, it must have been a great privilege to work on Henson Productions. Yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up, as I've said, in, in theatre where, Things were pretty small scale, and um, the budget was tight. And I remember going onto onto Labyrinth and just thinking, "Wow, I've never seen anything on this scale before using puppets." And I was I was privileged to be at Jim's funeral, uh, memorial service at St Paul's Cathedral, and the Bishop of Stepney, who was preaching, said, "You know, we must remember that Jim Henson did for puppetry what Walt Disney did for animation." And I think for me that really brought home just the impact of of Jim's mind and creativity and skill alongside his fantastic you know personal qualities and what he what he did for puppetry and without Jim we you know most of my career simply would never have happened um so you know he was it was yeah a huge privilege to be to be part of that Oh, it's really great to hear. Really great to hear. Um, the other thing as well. Uh, so we'll move on now to like the you know the children's television you did. Mm-hmm. Um, the probably the most famous role you did was Nobby the Sheep on Ghost Train. Give me five. I mean, any good memories of doing Saturday morning TV? Oh gosh, yes. Well, my memories first of all were not happy. It was so it was so terrifying. I just remember on on Ghost Train myself and the other presenters most of whom were, were, were new to doing live television, just waking up on a Saturday morning and feeling sick with nerves to the pit of our stomachs. Um, and Ghost Train toured around the different ITV regions as they were in those days. And uh, we filmed in different locations. So there were lots of um, opportunities for technical cock-ups and glitches. And as a puppeteer, you're very reliant on having the monitor to be able to see what you're doing and having an earpiece so you can hear the director and know how long you've got on an item and all the rest of it, because you can't see the floor manager waving at you. And and at times it was an absolute nightmare. And we filmed in a rubbish dump in Carlisle with Kylie Minogue. And we filmed in oh an ice cream factory in Ireland. And we filmed, I mean, you name it, we filmed all over the place. But it was the, the adrenaline, once we kind of got a bit more used to it, the adrenaline that came with that, so just the excitement, um, was was just was great, and and it was lovely to work particularly with artists, um, mostly um, actors, but also a lot of pop stars, who were just willing to engage with a puppet. And Nobby the Sheep was treated as um, as just one of the presenters for Ghost Train and Gimme Five had four presenters, and just one of whom happened to be a sheep. 
And as long as you just treated Nobby as being just, you know, a presenter, but instead of being black or being gay or whatever, he's just a sheep, you were fine. Uh, and some, some pop stars really struggled with that and thought they would try and make themselves look big by, you know, treating Nobby as a puppet. And they always fell on their faces. They did really badly whenever they tried to do that. But people like Danny Minogue was fantastic. All the boys from Take That were just golden. They just completely greeted Nobby like he was their mate that they went out clubbing with usually or whatever. And, and the rapport was fantastic. And this was at a time when I think most children's TV presenters had to play it very, very safely. TV, you know, this is before Big Brother or anything where people really, I think, changed television. People were far more polite and respectful. And this was a time, therefore, when a puppet could say the things that a human being would never dream of saying. Now, I think humans on TV now do say some of those things. But Nobby the Sheep could, could flirt with the girls and be matey with the boys in a way that otherwise would have looked a bit dodgy coming from the other presenters. And just say that, be cheeky and slightly subversive in a way that wasn't rude either. So, and in fact, I think it was the Stage magazine described, uh, a newspaper described Nobby the Sheep as being the puppet equivalent of Jeremy Paxman. Um, in the way that he could just, he could just come out with stuff, but it wasn't vindictive. It wasn't being nasty. It was all very tongue in cheek and he just got away with it. And I say he got away with it. Of course, it wasn't the sheep, the puppet got away with it. It was me really, uh, cause I was the voice and I was coming up with whatever Nobby the sheep said, uh, when it was good and when it was, when it was bad and I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but very, very, um, happy memories of, uh, flying by the seat of your pants and meeting some astonishing people. Yeah, I mean, one, you must have had to have thought up of what to say, you know, off the cuff, everything was live. And secondly, um, you must have met some really big names over the course of that programme. Yeah, I did. Um, I'm, I'm now trying to think who they were. I mean, we had some, we had some regular favourites who were, um, you know, you, you could just rely on to be great fun. Uh, and often you wouldn't even begin to prepare an interview because you'd just think, well, I'll just say, ask what they've been up to. And so a classic person for that was, would be Jason Donovan. Um, and I, it's funny, Jason's in um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the Palladium Theatre, just up the road from where I live. And he's playing Pharaoh at the moment. And uh, I was there filming when he first did Joseph 20 odd years ago. And he was Joseph before then handing it on to Philip Schofield. And I've got a very nice picture on my wall of him and Nobby the Sheep sitting in the auditorium with a whole letter from Jason. And, and, and people like him were just great because they would just go along with whatever you wanted to do. Let's do a cookery item. Yeah, no problem. He'll do it. Um, and, but lots of, lots of people from, you know, work with people as diverse as Jean-Paul Gaultier through to, I don't know how many soap stars, pop stars. Um, Lulu was gorgeous, absolutely to die for. Um, uh, oh, I, I, my mind goes blank because there were just so many people across the years. And what was it like many years later to bring Nobby the Sheep back for a one-off with the weakest link? And also, how is, is Anne Robinson as scary as she comes across on television? <laughs> uh, yeah, she is, actually. She is as... Um, I don't know what she's like in real life, because I think even when Anne, the Anne Robinson that you see on, Anne Robinson that you see on television is um, performing to 
the audience there on the on the TV screen. She's also performing to the guests and the contestants when the camera isn't rolling. Uh, you know, the, you, the still, I'm sure still the real person doesn't come through. So she maintains that persona. But I was very pleased that I did genuinely manage to make her laugh um, because I knew that she had um, written to Spitting Image to complain about her puppet not having a Scouse accent. Um, and because I'm from I'm from the Wirral, so just across the across the river from from Liverpool, I sort of you know fairly reasonably attuned to that, and I always thought she doesn't have a particularly Scouse accent. You know, it wasn't like, it doesn't sound like Silla Black, for example. You know, you can't. It's an odd thing to complain about. And I was just able to slip that in, and and it did catch her off guard and made her laugh. And I thought, oh yeah, there is there's there's a real person under there. Uh, but we're just we're just keeping up this, you know ice maiden exterior for the cameras and for anybody who can see her you know in the studio so it just amused me uh, but it was it was good to do and i um it was odd being surrounded by so many different puppeteers um different characters and um it was also i have to say coming back to our earlier conversation i was in probably one of the most uncomfortable positions physically to work in which was really was really distracting but there was just the height of the podium meant there was nothing I could do about that. And and then, because Nobby hadn't been used for a long time, suddenly I was aware that a hole was appearing underneath his chin. I could feel this cold air on my thumb. I realised the puppet was disintegrating in front of me. So not only was I in discomfort, I was aware that the puppet <laughs> was breaking up on me and having to then sort of readjust his head angles all the time to try and prevent the camera from seeing this large hole and my thumb that was appearing under Nobby the Sheep's chin would have spoiled the illusion slightly. But um, anyway, I, I got through to the final three and left it to, I think it was Roland Ratt and uh, Sue from the Sooty Show yeah. to battle it out. And Sue won, bless her. So all power to, uh, to pandas. I remember watching it when it came out. It was really good, like you say, to see all those different puppets together. And I mean, to mm. answer quick fire quiz questions is, you know, can be difficult in itself. But doing it at the same time as operating a puppet must have been even more difficult. Yeah. And it, it's partly that thing of not having um, when you're answering the question or when the, you can't see the person who's talking to you. You know, if, if, if on the monitor you've just got yourself or you've just got a picture of Anne Robinson, you, you suddenly think, um, well, I can see her, but I can't actually tell at the moment who she's looking at. So you don't know that she's suddenly going to direct that question at you or whatever. She's you know, suddenly throws something at you. So, you, yeah, it's like your senses are slightly, um, are slightly numbed. And, and that, that certainly is much more, makes it much more difficult. And likewise with interviewing people, you know, you don't see the puppet's you know, eyes widen slightly like he's going to interject with something. And likewise, if the camera's on me, I can't see... My, the person I'm interviewing sort of making eyebrow gestures as if to say, can we move on or can we wrap it up or whatever. So it's, it's, a, it's a very different experience puppeteering um, with, against live people as well. That adds to the challenge of simply being on the weakest link. I can imagine it certainly is, but it was, it was incredibly good fun to watch. Oh, good. Yeah, it was. It was good fun. Good fun. I think one of the best specials they did... Well, they said that at the time, and Anne Robinson came in and said, um, "Are we at the end of the show?" And they're like, um, "That was great, and you know, it was as good as the one we did with the drag queens." Um, but it, I don't think it's been shown very much. But um, yeah, I think I thought I watched this and thought it was the, the puppets held their own, which was good.
Were there any puppets there or puppeteers there that you were quite in awe of? Because there were so many of them. Um, mostly people I'd worked with over the years. There were a few people from shows that I didn't know. Um, uh, I think I know puppeteers too well to be in awe of any of them. And I hope none of them are in awe of me. Uh, you know, we just, uh, we're, we're not exactly um, separating conjoined twins or doing brain surgery. You know, we'd, we'd, it's, it's, it's something you have a feeling for and a flair for. And uh, it's, a, it's a gift and an opportunity and it's great fun and a, a privilege to be able to make a career out of something that, you, you know, makes other people laugh and frequently makes you laugh as well while you're doing it. Uh, and often the thing you're, you're laughing at is the fact that you can make a career out of something so ridiculous. But uh, so, no, I think or, or isn't something I would use for m- most puppeteers. I mean, Jim Henson would be on another and another another you know, on a, on a distinct pedestal if you were here now. But uh, no, not on the weakest link, I have to say. It was a meeting of equals. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, but is, has there ever been um, a puppet TV show or film that you thought, oh, I wish I'd have worked on that? Um, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to think what it was, because I remember thinking it was quite unusual for me to have that reaction. Um, uh, I've been a few things that I've been asked to work on that have, you know, were pre-existing, and I've been really glad to have been asked. One of those was Mongrels, um, the, um, the, the adult puppet series, partly because uh, Andy Heath and Justin Evans make such fantastic puppets, um, and it was just really nicely shot. Um, and so I was delighted to be asked on that. But, I, but I, you know, the, yeah, there have been very few things that I've thought, um, oh, I really wish I was doing that. I've just been very thankful for all the things that I have been able to work on. Well, that's a fair enough answer. So, uh, Nobby the Sheep wasn't your only foray into Saturday morning television. I do remember Mashed with Jarvis the Monkey. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, yeah, so after eight, uh, eight, six years of Nobby the Sheep, um, I then had two, I think it was two, maybe it was three years, as uh, Jarvis the Monkey, um, produced by Tiny Tees Television. And unlike Ghost Train, uh, which we toured around the country, but Gimme Five had been filmed in, uh, in Tiny Tees. Mashed also was a studio-based Tiny Tees production, but on a, on a bit of a smaller scale. So it was before there were multiple presenters and a game in the car park and all the rest of it. This was more like, I think, a homage to the broom cupboard with Andy Peters and Ed the Duck or Philip Schofield and uh, Gordon the Gopher, one of my favourite puppets of all time. And, and it was very much um, Jez, who was new to television, and uh, myself under Jarvis the Monkey. And one of the funniest bits of fan mail I got about halfway through the first series was a letter that just said, Dear Jarvis the Monkey, did you used to be Nobby the Sheep? And I just thought that was brilliant. <laughs> Obviously, somebody, somebody recognised something in my voice and gave it away. So, well, Nobby the Sheep was a scouser, and uh, Jarvis the Monkey was from uh, Dudley um, for some peculiar reason. And uh, the story, the backstory was that he'd been a roadie in a band, so he knew everybody. It was a bit of a sort of, you know, it was a bit of a myth as to whether he actually had had this glittering career. A bit, a bit like Nessa on Gavin and Stacey. You know, you're not quite sure what to believe. Uh, some of the stuff that he'd come out with and all the people that he'd allegedly worked with. But it was always done in a bit of a throwaway, not a sort of bragging sort of way. And uh, Master was good fun because Jez was such a great person to to, to work with and such a lovely guy. Um, he was very new, as I say, and, uh, and sometimes he needed a bit of hand-holding and guiding through things. Uh, sometimes it felt as though actually the monkey was running the show, certainly in the early days while he found his feet. 
But he enjoyed that. And Jez is one of those people who's got absolutely no ego. So if somebody can, you know, make good telly out of making him look a prat, he's quite happy. So we, we got on famously. Yeah, I have actually spoken to him and he, he does come across as a very lovely guy. He is. He's so lovely that in wearing my other hat as an Anglican priest, I was then later able to marry him to his now beautiful bride, uh, Gemma. This was a great honour. Yes, he so. did tell me. And yeah. uh, it, it threw me a bit. I was like, oh, wow, that's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've sort of steered him through two, two very different productions, Mashed <laughs> and his wedding. So there you go. <laughs> And, um, yeah, so, I mean, Saturday morning television, um, always, you know, good good fun, I imagine, to do and, uh, you know, quite uh, daunting because it's all live. Um, but like you say, well, it was different because it was kind of a smaller studio-based thing as opposed to, like, the big uh, outdoors, all-over-the-place kind of uh, thing that uh, Ghost Train was and Gimme Five. Um, are there any... Because the pop stars would have changed a bit from the early 90s to the late 90s and, like, the soap stars that appeared on. Are there any that sure. appeared on MASH that you remember? Yeah, a few. Um, I mean, you know, again, in a sense, history slightly repeated itself. You know, the, the people that came out well were the ones who had just engaged with the puppet. And, and whereas I think on the bigger shows that you just mentioned, there were other things going on. Um, this show really, you know, the, its success, it was a bit sort of Graham Norton-esque in a sense, in that it just relied on the chemistry between the presenters, i.e. Jez and the Monkey, and Jez and the Monkey and the guests. So it was absolutely crucial that you got the right people. Uh, Danny Minogue never failed to disappoint and came on was just brilliant. And she, again, was lovely with Jarvis. And at one point, she sort of took his hand. She said, I'm just looking into your eyes, Jarvis. And I just, I, you know, I can't help but deal with, we've met before somewhere. And it was just a really nice sort of moment for those who were in the know that we'd worked together in the past, which was sweet. Um, one of the people I remember being absolutely knocked out by, much to my surprise, and it's a real lesson in not judging people in advance, Peter Andre, the nicest man in the world. Um, I'd done a pantomime at uh, Central Television. Um, oh, no, LWT. It was a children's ITV panto for television with lots of characters on. And, and people there said how nice he was. And he, I saw him interacting with the ladies bringing a tea trolley around. I thought, oh, he seems like a decent chap. And when he came on Ghost Train, uh, sorry, on, on Mashed, he was just the most um, self-effacing, easygoing, egoless person. He was an utter joy. Um, and that was when he was sort of really at his his peak, I guess. And um, uh, anybody had a few ups and downs as well. And uh, yeah, it was just lovely to meet somebody who'd kept being really normal despite being in a lot of you know in, in the public eye so much. Um, the guys from Steps were all good fun. Uh, they were they were an absolute hoot. Uh, the boys from Five were um, uh, diverse, shall we say? Some were friendlier than others. <laughs> Um, and yeah, a whole mixture of people across across the series, which um, yeah, some of whom you think, I wonder what they're doing now. And somebody, I remember Chesney Hawks came back on, who I'd first interviewed in the Gimme Five days, and a uh, Ghost Train days, I think it was. And uh, he said he looked back and remembered coming on on Ghost Train once and being a bit snooty towards uh, talking to a sheep, and he'd learned his lesson. Now he was talking to a monkey, which I thought was a nice uh, a nice thing to say. <laughs> yeah, it must be, uh, I guess it must be quite different. You get interviewed by all these people all the time and then all of a sudden you have a puppet shoved in your face asking you questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And often the puppets asking the questions that at that time particularly, as I think I've said, you know, the humans didn't dare ask. <laughs> uh, but it gave you an opportunity, it gave me the human 
um, guest an opportunity to show a different side of their personality. And maybe for some uh, of the live guests, uh, there wasn't another side to their personality, or they were actually just so fixated in conveying a particular image as a particular kind of pop star or whatever, they just didn't want to let that slip. Mm, we had yeah. quite a few people come up from Emmerdale. Please don't quiz me on names other than Mark, the guy that played Marlon, um, maybe still does. And he was great. Uh, and again, it was often the people who were well-established in their careers, knew how to play it, and were very, um, yeah, just secure in themselves, I guess. But, you know, you, you, I think we often forget that many of the young pop stars from that whole kind of Stock Aitken Waterman stable and, and subsequently, um, you know, were, were very young and very inexperienced and suddenly thrown into this utterly crazy world. You know, and I remember outside the studios just being you know, hordes and hordes of screaming girls uh, of a Saturday morning waiting in the hope of seeing one of their, their idols, you know, who a few months before had just been in school or working in McDonald's or whatever and had suddenly been catapulted into the spotlight of fame. And so it wasn't surprising, really, as I look back on it, that some of them didn't, you know, always handle it with the most sophistication, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess for some of the celebrities, it, would, it was nice to, because I, I would assume that uh, you get asked the same things again and again and again, and mm. the, the opportunity there was to kind of ask something a bit different and to kind of just find out some different, you know, just ask something like, you know, what, what's your favourite uh, thing to have on toast or something silly like sure. that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of them love that, and some of them love the opportunity to, instead of just sitting, talking like they had done on Endless, you know, TV shows, of, you know, breakfast TV shows and things on the mainstream telly, on the children's TV, the fact that they would be having that conversation, but whilst making, you know, a Knickerbocker glory or pancakes or whatever it was, you know, doing something, which also would have a bit of fun with, with the puppet knocking things over, usually deliberately, sometimes unintentionally, because I could see what I was doing. Uh, and again, it just, it, it took some of the pressure off them just to, you know, answer the same old questions in a different way. It just... Yeah, it released them, I hope, a little bit. And um, there were certainly lots of, you know, lots of times when I remember, you know, going into a cartoon or something and everybody just falling about laughing, you know, mm. the way things had gone, which is, which is was nice. Very nice. And we had it was because there was a time when lots of people sent in um, pictures of, of uh, the puppet as well. And so I got lots of, um, lots of children sending in nice pictures of Jarvis and Jez together, which I've, I've just got an envelope or a folder stuffed full of them still um, I didn't keep all of them by any means but I've, I've kept a good number and uh, you know some of those are written by people who will now be parents and I don't know what their children are watching on a Saturday mo morning but I hope it's keeping them as entertained as Jez and Jarvis managed to together. Definitely definitely I mean how did you feel when you know the, the show was kind of uh, very quickly ended due to um, another Saturday morning program starring uh, a pair of Geordies and a girl from Birmingham uh, that kind of took over. <laughs> well, it was very funny because um, Anton Deck had been guest on Gimme Five. They were brought on, having been on Biker Grove, um, they were brought on to be a sort of comedy double act. Mm. And they'd never really done comedy together. I think people just sensed there was a good rapport between the two of them. And... Um, they came onto onto Gimme Five, and were, they were writing their own sketches. And I have to, I will be honest, and I, you know, I've said this to the boys subsequently. They were not the funniest duo I've ever seen. You know, Morecambe and Wise were safe. Let's put it that way. 
And and so when we heard that, you know, um, Anton Deck had their own Saturday morning show, I think a few people sort of thought, oh, that'll be interesting. And of course, it was fantastic. You know, they'd really, I think they were well produced and they got the support they needed to really come up with the goods. And they, you know, it was a big scale show. It was, it was very different, you know, to, to Mashed uh, in scale and tone and everything. And of course, they've gone on to have great careers, which I'm delighted for because they're two, again, really lovely guys, very genuine, very down to earth. And, or, you know, even when I didn't think they were their funniest, they were always a delight to have <laughs> around. Um, so, no, we're quite, you know, I, we know that everything you do in television has a limited shelf life. You know, we forget that we're only, what, 10 episodes of Faulty Towers or something and 15 episodes of Not the Nine O'Clock News. So, you know, for Jez and Jarvis to get away with doing three times that amount, is, you know, we can't complain. No. No, that's fair enough. Fair enough. I did read somewhere as well. I can't remember where I read it, but it was something along the lines of the one. The one bizarre thing about uh, doing a puppet character on Saturday morning television is like if any fans kind of came up to the presenters, mm. they'd all be you know swanning random for autographs and then wondering who the hell you are because you were there yeah. without the puppet. <laughs> that's right. That's very true. I, I mean, to my <laughs> two main memories of that, one was going to um, the opening night of. Um, oh no, it wasn't the opening. It was Jason Donovan's 21st, 18th or 21st birthday party at the Rooftop Gardens in Kensington, which was quite a swanky nightclub at the time. And I arrived with all the ghost train presenters, and they got us a limo, and we all got out. And as we got out, the paparazzi were all there, and and I was asked to move out of the way because they wanted the, the people from the show. And my presenters were fantastic, and I said, "But this is Nobby the Sheep," and the photographer said, "Yeah, of course it is, right, mate? You know, just 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 back off." And so I was bundled out of the way so they could get the four humans. And the other time was coming back after an episode of Gimme Five on uh, on a Saturday morning, and Jenny Powell and I were at Newcastle Station waiting on the platform, and a man came up to Jenny and said, oh, "I just, you know, I, I know it's a kids' show, but I, I love it. I just think you're brilliant, and all the rest of it." And he said, I'm just glad that bloody sheep's not around. I hate that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of those moments. Jenny sort of looked at me, and I looked back at him, and this guy sort of reddened slightly and just said, sorry, mate, and walked away. <laughs> so I think he realised who I might have been. So it had its moments when it was quite good not to be recognisable, and other times when, yeah, you did think, yeah, hang on a second. Uh, according to the feedback, I'm the most popular you know, character in the show, but <laughs> nobody knows who I am. There you go. Did you ever sometimes surprise people by just slipping into the voice? Yeah, sometimes, yes. Yes. There was, <laughs> there was a time flying back from Ireland. We'd been doing a show, a, a, a ghost train over there. And I think it was shortly after the Jason Donovan incident at the, at the nightclub. And uh, as the waiter, or the, the steward rather, brought me my snack or whatever it was on the plane, and I said, thank you very much, he said to me, oh, I'm sorry, sir. I I know you, Donna. I recognise that voice. And I said, really, sir? Oh, you that? No, you're not that Nobby the sheep, are you? And I said, kind of slightly proudly, Oh, I I am actually. And he said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't recognise you at first, sir. Without the makeup, you look quite different. <laughs> <laughs> the presenters guffawing from the back. They'd obviously set it up. And this guy was doing so well, thinking he'd recognise my voice. But when he thought I normally wore makeup rather than had a whole puppet on the end of my arm and over my you know, my body down to my, my chest, basically. He sort of blew it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, there have been a couple of times when people say, oh, do the voice for us, do the voice. Cool, cool. There we go. 
Good fun, good fun. Um, there is one show that I've been dying to talk about the entire interview, and I'm going to get onto it now. Uh, the fantastic Roger and the Rotten Trolls. How oh. did that role come about? Mm. That's a good question. Um, gosh, it's so long ago now, I can't remember how it actually came about. I think there was a time when being one of the principal puppeteers on Spitting Image and then developing a kind of a solo career, as it were, with Nobby the Sheep, um, there were lots of you know, t children's television producers knew about me. And so I became a bit of a focus for a lot of uh, producers looking to launch a new, uh, a new idea. I, it wasn't a producer, but Bob Harris from the children's company. It wasn't a, you know, a person or a company I'd known before. I'd never worked for Tim Firth, the writer before, or his dad, um, Gordon Firth, who designed all the characters and whose concept the show was. So I think it was just through my reputation. And uh, they came to see me and have a chat about this completely over-ambitious idea that I really was worried was, was not going to be possible. But they had a very, uh, at the time, young and um, uh, up-and-coming director in Julian Kemp, who'd done something with Bob Howes before. And he had quite a unique way of using the cameras and, and Julian just had this energy, uh, having never worked with puppets before, and this idea that anything must be somehow possible. And actually, against all the odds, um, <laughs> the first series came together in a way that I think exceeded all our expectations, but certainly lived up to our dreams. Um, it was, so it was mostly filmed on location in a wonderful place called Brimham Rocks up in Yorkshire, just outside Harrogate. And it's about a, a load of trolls who live amongst these weird-shaped rocks. Uh, and then we would film all the interiors inside the caves at uh, initially Shepparton Studios and then later Ealing Studios. And I think we may have done some at Pinewood as well. I can't remember. But most of it was filmed on location. So we were at the mercy of the weather, which up in Yorkshire can be blisteringly hot in August, or it can be torrential rain or it can be fluctuate between the two on a half-hourly rotation. Um, and we were lying and squatting and, oh, I mean, just in the most awful puppeteering position. So often the puppets couldn't move very much, but with Julian's incredible um, camera moves, um, you felt that it was the most fast-paced puppet show I think I'd ever seen when it was all cut together. And genuinely, genuinely funny. Uh, all the characters were very individual. My favourite, or my main two, was uh, Jochen Thwaite, who was the stupidest of the Rotten Trolls, and then Commander Harris, who was a sheep who was um, uh, uniquely trained in the martial art of Jim Jam Yaha, <laughs> which is uh, combat without contact. And it's a kind of martial art moves that can have effect on people even when they're half a mile away. And he was a retired army mascot sheep with a balaclava over his head and uh, you know, horns sticking out. Um, voiced by, oh, Phil, Corm Phil Cornwall, I think it was Phil Cornwall. And Jochen Thwait was voiced by the wonderful John Thompson. And um, uh, Ronnie Ancona was Penny Ghent, one of the girl characters. Um, I forget who else now. A wonderful cast of characters and voices, stunning locations, and Tim Firth's utterly hilarious scripts that were the sort of thing that you think, well, that's wasted on children. But children were captivated by it all, but adults got the you know additional layers of gags um, and nonsense that was in there. One of my favourite episodes was called The Complimentary Cafetiere. <laughs> I know that one. 
wanted you know, and when Jochen Strait was uh, was reading about it, I've always wanted to eat a, a cafetiere. And Aesgarth, his dad, said, you idiot, you don't even know what one is. And he said, a cafetiere, it's like a tea shop on many levels. <laughs> there were just endless things like that. Yeah. Just, you know, it was a great show and, and very deservedly won BAFTAs for the show itself and for Julian as, as director. Um, and uh, it was one of the shows that I worked hardest on because it physically was so demanding. And at times we shot right through the night, um, which was extraordinary doing that up on the, on the Yorkshire Moors. Um, but it was, I think what we ended up with on screen was, was really quite something. Uh, it's a shame that because I, I guess of the ratio that it was filmed, in, uh, it, it, it won't be shown anymore because it doesn't fit on the, on the widescreen of everybody's TVs. Um, so it slightly got lost, which I think is a real shame. But it is, um, it's maybe one of those that in, five or ten years' time, somebody will rediscover as a cult classic and uh, it will have the, the attention that it, I think it really did deserve. I hope so. Because it, it's, like you say, it's one of those shows, I mean, it was very, very popular at the time of when it was aired. Mm. And then it's fell by the wayside a bit, really. And that's a massive shame because there is some wonderful gags in it that's just... Uh, it, it was just so surreal and bizarre. And like you said, there was quite a talented cast. I mean, not only all the names you mentioned, but the narrator was Martin Clunes as well. Yeah, um, and I think Alistair McGowan appeared in one episode, he did. didn't he? Yeah, yes. He appeared as himself. Because there were two children in it. Initially, there was one, um, mm. uh, Nicholas, who played uh, King Roger, who's the little boy who finds the trolls. And then as he started to grow up, I think people thought, hmm. Is he getting a bit old for this? We need to give him a younger sister. So a very sweet little girl called um, Holly Granger appeared as Princess Kate, his little sister. And she was quite something. We could tell very early on that she was going to be, uh, you know, this was, she was a very, very talented actress. And she was about eight or nine, I think, at the time. Well, now she's Holiday Granger, uh, who was Lucretia Borgia in The Borgias, and has had a fantastic career popping up in all sorts of uh, drama series and um, has really, you know, her career has taken off. So, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, you know, not just the puppets, but there were some great human actors in there as well. Yeah, and uh, there are so many scenes and episodes I could probably reel off. And the cafetier one was good. All be, having worked on them, they all become a bit of a blur. Oh, yes. Uh, so, off the top of my head, there was the one where they make their own television programmes oh. and the Jochenfweit and the, the more stupid of Rotten Trolls come up with programmes like the dart-throwing weather chicken and um, name that foot and stuff like that. <laughs> And then the, the, the more cleverer ones come up with all these really boring programmes like Word of the Week and <laughs> the news yes. at 10, and, and they just argue over whose programmes are better. Um, yes. And then there was one with the gambling as well, when they're all the playing gambling, poker. Gambling casino. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Jochen Thwait has the wrong cards. He has uh, yes. the happy family cards, and he gets chucked out. That's right. That's right. Um, it was oh. a wonderful one as well. I'm not a football person, but we did a great football episode. Yes. And, and one of the things they wanted to see, because it was a, one of those daft things that footballers were doing at the time, was when they scored a goal, was to pull their shirts over their head and then slide on their bellies. Mm, yes. The grass. And, and Julian said, I re the director, I really want to see it. That's what I want to see us do. And we managed to work out how, a way to do it. 
um, you know, given that the puppets basically are, you know, you've got the hands, your puppeteer's hands going up the bodies and the bodies sort of finish at the, at the groin, really, on those puppets. Um, so we built a raised platform with what I can only describe, describe as like a massive zip of bristles that the, the puppets could then be repositioned to slide down. And this, the bristles opened up as the puppet's arms went cut through these, mm. these bristles that met in the middle like a zip. And, and with a very low camera angle, you just saw this puppet sliding towards you with its, you know, T-shirt pulled over its head. But there were loads of things like that. He did an episode as well. Actually, this is probably Tom's fault rather than Julian. It was all about trendy trainers. Somebody had found a pair of trendy trainers that had been dropped in the valley. And suddenly all the trolls got trainers. And they wanted a, uh, like a catwalk down the table in the middle of the grand hall in the trolls' um, uh, cave of all these characters walking down this wretched table. And of course, you know, with puppets with people's hands underneath coming through them and puppeteers underneath, shots of feet are the last thing you want to be doing. But again, we found a way to do it with some really clever trickery and bits of the table moving and things. And it was, yeah, it was amazing to work all of that stuff out uh, and then often to do it on location in a break between the, you know, the lashing rain and then the, the sun suddenly blistering everything was, uh, was quite, quite amazing. Yeah. I mean, there have been certain shots in it, like, you know, of, how have they done that? I mean, there were, there were times when, you know, Roger or Kate will be talking down to one of the characters and the camera angle's pointing down. You can see the puppet standing there with yeah. his feet, but there's no puppeteer in sight and he stood on the ground. And it's like, yeah. how did they do that? But I was, would assume it would be some kind of platform that was exactly. raised of some kind. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it meant that we still, we had very small, when we had to do those shots, we were working through very small holes in the platform, which really restricted, you know, how you could move the puppet and getting the head angles around and, and still being able to give the arm movement. And then for somebody else to come in so that the feet that you saw at the bottom of the puppet weren't just sat there dead, but were still shuffling like, slightly as, you know, as mm. feet would. Um, yeah, we, we uh, I had to cast a very... Um, a team of puppeteers who are quite happy to be intimate with one another, shall I say. <laughs> um, I, I always say that to be a good puppeteer, you need two things, three things. One is a sense of humour, two is a sense of coordination, and number three is a lot of deodorant, because um, we do get close to one another when we're doing things like that. Yeah, I guess that's the one, the one downside of being a puppeteer, but it's all good fun in the end and good memories. <laughs> exactly, very but good memories. Definitely. Um, I just thought of one more, actually, that was quite yeah. funny. There was one where they had a sports day, but Jochenthwaite mixed up all the rules. So they had games like cross-country snooker, five-a-side pole vault, um, and I can't remember what else there was, but it was all completely garbled sports that didn't make any sense. Yes. I'd forgotten about that one. Yes. There were so many. I must, I've, got, I've got some of them uh, that I, I recorded, and I must, I must sit down sometime and, uh, and go through them, because I know that it'll be a... You know, it will bring back many happy memories, and there'll be lots of things that I don't even remember us <laughs> doing. But you know, I, I, I must have been there because I was there every single day. Yeah, but they were. Yeah, they were great shows. Really good shows. Really good. There is one thing I wanted to actually because you operated the puppets, but the puppets are voiced by someone else. I yeah. mean, John Thompson with Yockenthwaite. So, did the puppet mime along to a pre-recorded track, or was he there at the same time voicing the character? But I don't know how that would really work. Yeah, no. So he, they pre-recorded all the voice mm. tracks. So, and this is how we worked on Spitting Image. Um, so the voice track would be pre-recorded like a radio play, in a sense. And then you would mine the puppet to the voice track. 
So that required you to be able to hear the track in advance to get to know the timing of it, because it might not be the same as your natural timing for the delivery of those lines if you were voicing it live yourself. The additional challenge on Roger and the Rotten Trolls was that, of course, we had humans in there as well. So within, when they recorded the, um, the soundtrack, the voice track in advance, they had to leave gaps for Nick, who was the, uh, Roger, uh, or for Alistair McGowan for his bits, uh, and likewise for Holly when she was doing hers. And so it was very difficult for them because they had to stick, they had to deliver their lines live in front of the cameras, but with exactly the same pace that they'd delivered them when they'd recorded them several weeks earlier in a sound studio in London. Otherwise, they would finish their line and then there'd be a pause before Jochenthrope would say, I agree, King Roger. And, you know, <laughs> you had to somehow make it all go go together. So it was, it was difficult for the, it was more difficult actually for the humans than for the puppeteers in that respect. And I have to say, you do a very good uh, rendition of the voice of Jochenthrope. <laughs> Thank you very much ingrained in my memory. Oh, it was just such a great character to do. It was, it was. Yeah. The bobble-hatted Burke. His, his, uh, his little bobble hat and his two thumbs up. Yo, champion! And it was just it was just everybody's lovable dunce. You know, he was just, yeah, just such a great character. I hope the puppets uh, from the Rotten Trolls are being kept somewhere nice and safe. <laughs> I hope so. I have no idea where they are, actually. Um, I know they were living in a barn in Norfolk for long enough. Uh, they're made of foam latex. Um, and that does deteriorate over time, and uh, especially if it's exposed to sunlight. And the puppets will work very, very hard um, and, and being used on location and lots of costume changes and occasionally getting covered in you know, foam and then having to be you know, painted their faces blacked up because something had exploded in their face so they had to look like they'd got soot all over their faces. They were often being repainted and things. And they, they did take quite a lot of, um, a lot of bashing. So I, I hope they're in reasonable condition and that the rotten trolls are comfortable wherever they are. We can only hope. And there yeah. was, because um, it was so popular, there was a spin-off as well called Ripley and Scuff, which I do remember. Yeah. And yeah. you were Scuff in the first series. I was indeed, yes, yes. So Ripley and Scuff, uh, Ripley and Scuff had a little sister called Strid, and Strid had been a baby in uh, the rotten trolls. And towards the end of that, I think Ripley and Scuff did appear and then they had their own series which uh, was based around them going around different schools and um, it was a short sort of drama in around the school but mostly going in and doing uh, interactive make and do's with the children and just bits of nonsense and stuff and we filmed gosh we filmed all over the place from Anglesey to, uh, to, to Norfolk Broads um, and everywhere in between I think um, yeah and that, that did very well I just did the first series of that um, and then two other puppeteers took over on the second uh, series yeah do I... I think I think it did rather well I think it did a I think that was a battle winning series as well I think it was and it was yeah. repeated quite a lot as well once it had finished it was they were still showing it a good five or six years later afterwards oh right oh, yeah. Right. yeah I mean one of the things that I've had most um, uh, life out of in it but it's a much more recent series has been um, they're behaving badly mm. with uh, Barney Harwood and uh, Neb the Bear, in which I played Crazy Keith the Koala, and, <laughs> yes. and I'm amazed at the um, you know the repeats that still come into that from you know all over the place. So it is nice when these you know these things um, you know are still showing years on and and making new friends as well as reminding their old friends of how much they used to love them when they were a kid. It is nice.
Yeah, definitely. It is nice. Um, t- to be fair, I didn't realise that they're behaving badly is like something like 10 years old or more than that. It just it still feels recent to me. <laughs> it does, yes, yes. No, I quite agree. It um, doesn't look I, that dated. I had the privilege, I, mean, I mentioned earlier about taking Jez and uh, Jez Edwards' wedding. I also had the privilege of um, doing the memorial service for Bella Emberg, the actress who played Aunt Barbara. And, and it was really when we were preparing for that, which was um, September before last, and uh, thinking, gosh, this is, you know, Bear Behaving Badly was, feels like it was only a few years ago. But actually, it's, you know, it was, we began it a decade or more ago. It was quite extraordinary. Uh, yeah, time, time passes, as we know, Jack. Indeed. Quickly. Indeed. And uh, one of the, 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 very, the big shows in the 2000s, which I didn't realise you worked on until having a look through your website, and that was The Fimbles. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was, um, I was not involved in The Fimbles themselves, but the, their, the Fimble friends, I Rocket the Frog, Bessie the Bird, and Roly Mo the Mole. Um, so I was the um, puppetry coordinator for The Fimbles. Uh, again, three series, which we shot, shot at Bray Studios out in Berkshire. And uh, and then Roly Mo got his own show on the back of that, uh, the Roly Mo show, which was was a really lovely, very sweet show, just with puppets without the thimbles in it, just the puppet characters, and uh, and a couple more puppets than had been in the uh, in thimbles. But yeah, that was so that was a follow-on really after the Teletubbies, uh, sorry the Tweenies, no, which came first, Teletubbies. Teletubbies first, mm. and then and then and then thimbles was the next sort of incarnation of that. Uh, idea of a preschool show set in its own world with large costume characters, and uh, again, I think I think uh, that's still being shown in different places. I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. Rocket the Frog was probably uh, a director I worked with called um, Adrian Headley said to me, you know, he thought it was the best television puppet that was ever made, and it was certainly one of the most. Um, Oh, well, I don't know, almost charismatic, I would say, as a puppet, voiced by Wayne Forrester, who's a fantastic guy, does lots of animation uh, voiceovers. And the, but the puppet was really strong, very unusual-looking creature. It took two of us to operate it, one doing the head and the eyes, and then somebody else doing cables on the arms. And you could get some quite extraordinary movements out of him. It was, however, also one of the heaviest puppets I've ever made. Uh, made by the Neil Scanlon Studios, and Neil got an Oscar for the puppets he made for Babe, but um, he nearly got a, a, a you know a black eye from me from <laughs> giving me the heaviest puppet of my career at one point. But uh, no, on camera though, uh, Rocket the Frog really, you know, I think is a tremendously eye-catching uh, uh, personality, and that's uh, that's down to a mixture of the voice, the physicality of the puppet, uh, you know, the, the way it looks, and and I'll take a bit of credit for holding it up. And giving it the energy that it uh, it needed, but uh, yeah, that was that was a that was a good project to be part of. It's always good when you you see a puppet on television. It's so well done in terms of the operating it and the you know the different animatronics and that that you almost start to believe it's real. And you think is is there yeah. a puppeteer there? Is that you can't see yeah. anything? And you know, I mean, you know that it's not real. But if something is so good that you actually start you know thinking, mm, how did they do that? Yeah, you know that yeah. is always good. Yeah, but I think I think the best stage is when you go beyond that and you just accept the character. Mm. You don't even think about it. No, you know, true. There, there is that moment of how it, how is this being done? Um, but then when you just go beyond that and you just think, well, it's just it, it just is. It's just alive, and you you stop thinking about that. I, I saw The Lion King on Saturday night. You know the new version, mm. 
And, and I found that quite difficult at the beginning because I, I didn't know what I was watching. Um, you know, this, they look like real animals. Are they animals with CG overlay? Is this totally computer graphics? I, and it was, I found it initially a bit sort of disconcerting. Uh, whereas, you know, when you watch uh, the, the original, you know what you're watching. And, and you just think, wow, isn't that amazing? Um, so, and so, yes, it was, a, it was a peculiar sensation, really. And I can see how a number of people would have the same uh, reaction looking at something with puppets in and thinking, well, where's the human? You know, where's his, where's his or her head? Or how to get his arm up there? Or what's that made of? Um, but I think, it, I think ultimately, you know, the, the magic uh, of puppets are when we go beyond that and we just accept this little thing as being alive. And I did a, I did a, a demonstration at my local library um, a year or so ago. And some friends of mine were there, and they said, we couldn't get over the way when you got your original sooty glove puppet out of your out of box and put it on your hand and just worked it. Everybody in the room just went, oh. And he said, it was just sooty was there. And the fact that you were still standing there, and we could clearly see that your hand was going up, you know, sooty's bottom, just completely, we just forgot about all of that in an instant. And this little, you know, bit of, old fur fabric but very frayed around the edges now just completely came to life and i think that's that's the magic of puppetry for me that's what i think really drew me into it and keeps bringing me back to it absolutely um one other like a really popular puppet character in this country that you worked with for a, for a short while um when they brought back emu with with rod's son toby so <laughs> yeah. did you operated him when he when the character couldn't be attached to toby's arm for those scenes didn't you yes that's right yes yes i'd actually met rod with uh with emu doing um a song for comic relief with spitting image well actually it was a, it was a huge puppet song um uh, and, oh, what else is it called now? It'll, maybe it'll come to me. But certainly the, the, the puppets from Spitting Image were on it and also from another show I did called Round the Bend. And um, Bill and Ben were there and I think Lady Penelope was there. And I all, know all, what you're going on about because I was watching this the other day. It's called Helping Hand. That's right. Rubber Band-Aid, Helping Hand. Uh, but on that, uh, I was doing the Madonna puppets from Spitting Image in makeup at Old TV Centre, at BBC TV Centre on Wood Lane. And in the next chair was Rod Hull, having his makeup done. And so I met him very briefly and thought he was uh, an interesting character. And then many years later, Chris Pilkington, the director or producer at the, uh, who had been at BBC and worked on, on that with me, um, phoned me up and said, we're bringing back Emu with Toby Hull, Rod's son. Um, but we want to be able to separate the two. And... Um, uh, and so that, you know, uh, Toby can be sitting with Emu on the sofa and then get up and do something, leaving Emu behind. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so we filmed in Ireland for a few months, I think, a couple of months, and um, did, uh, did Emu, which was uh, it's quite a, a challenge operating a character that's already well-known. And you have to both bring another dimension to it is what they want you to do, but also stay faithful to, to the original. And I had some experience of that because I trained Mike, Michael Windsor, who does um, Basil Brush. Uh, I taught him to puppeteer for Basil. And again, it was that thing of, gosh, this is a well-known character, you know, almost a national treasure, an icon. Um, it's almost a bit cheeky to bring it back or to, to um, 
know, put your hand up. Who's, who has the you know who has the right to do that? But uh, people wanted to see the character again, and Mike's done a fantastic job with Basil, who's just you know just wonderful. Um, and certainly Toby um, brought Emu back to life for a whole new generation. He did, and I was one of the people who watched it and enjoyed hey, it. Good, that's good to hear. The only shame was I don't think it ran for very long. I think they only did two series, didn't they? Which is a bit of a shame. Uh, yeah, I think they did. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You, you never know what that's about. Sometimes mm. it is about the show. Sometimes it can be a whole load of different reasons. Um, yeah, but you know, as I always just think of these things, that you just enjoy it while you're doing it, and it may run and run and run and run, and other times you you, you just great things don't last very long. Sometimes no. there's no, there's not always a you know rhyme or reason. Uh, about it yeah definitely and it's very cool you were involved in that comic relief video because i was watching that not long ago because I, I to be honest i don't remember it firsthand because i think it came out a couple of years before i was born but i come across <laughs> it um sorry about that um it's uh i saw it on youtube uh, some years later and thought oh my god these you know this thing with all these different characters that i remember that that's really yeah. cool there must have been hundreds of people operating all these puppets at the same time and, and yeah. the amount of different characters they dug out for it some of them that hadn't been on telly for years some were very current at the time it was quite cool yeah no it was it was good it was very interesting for a lot of people saying, i don't even know who that puppet is you know and, mm. uh, and other people saying, i thought that puppeteer was dead you know it was like a great gathering of the uh, the tribes uh, all at tv center yeah. They should do it. They should do a new one with some of the characters that have kind of come since. I think yeah. that'd be cool. Yeah, they should. Yeah, we did. Um, I, think, I think we mentioned this. The, the, you know, the weakest link mm. was the nearest we've had of that of bringing lots of different puppets together. Um, but yeah, to do a, to do a song would be a great way to um, bring back puppets from different generations. And uh, yeah, I think it's Maybe quite a great. Will hear this and write a number. We'll, we'll have to see, uh, but uh, the, the, it is it is quite um, quite a British tradition, really. Puppetry, I guess, it is a very very uh, big thing and part of British society. The whole being entertained by puppets, I think. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, there was there was certainly a period um, up until fairly recently when when puppets were kind of dismissed as being a children's toy or entertainment, and then it's really things like you know the, the Muppet Show began to break that because that was very much a family show whereas Watch With Mother wasn't. You know, Mother watched under duress as her children watched Andy Pandy or whatever. That's even my age away, because that's what I used to watch. My poor mum sat through you know, episodes of The Wooden Tops or whatever. And then The Muppet Show came along, and it was very much a family puppet show. And then, of course, Spitting Image came along, which was not a family puppet show, but an adult puppet show. Um, and, th and I think that really started to break the mould in terms of the use of puppets on television. And then, of course, within theatre... Um, you know, puppets in theatre really was very much sort of Punch and Judy or string puppets uh, in, a, in a very few you know, theatres around the country. But again, people then started to use puppets in other things. So and a great uh, example of that has been the National Theatre's production of War Horse with those amazing puppets made uh, by the South African company Hamspring. And that's revolutionised how puppets are used in theatre. Uh, in the UK now, and um, lots of directors, you know, are literally looking for an opportunity to use puppets rather than thinking, oh, there's no way to do this other than, oh, damn, we're going to have to use puppets. So it's, there's been a real mind shift uh, on that. And um, I think, yeah, puppets now are really embedded 
in, in, in British art and culture and, and then still in popular culture through Punch and Judy, which is still, you know, it's still going strong. Um, often to people's surprise, they think it's died out, but it, it certainly hasn't. And uh, there's an annual Punch and Judy festival in Covent Garden when many of the country's Punch and Judy professors, as they're called, come together and, uh, and do their shows. And I don't know how many Punch and Judy shows there are, but it's far from a dying art. You know, there's, 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 there's plenty of um, red-nosed puppets hitting their wives with sticks and throwing their babies down the stairs and feeding them to the crocodiles and things. Um, and the authorities haven't stopped them, so hurrah for that. Indeed. And you seem quite um, passionate about puppetry and, and about, you know, the, the history and the art. You, you don't just do it as a job and then just, you know, forget about it. You seem quite passionate about it as an art form. Yeah, I've always been interested in kind of puppetry holistically, as it were. I mean, a lot of people now have only come into puppetry on the back of seeing the Muppets, so their interest is in just in television puppetry. And, you know, I have no problem with that. But I, my interest began before that, you know, t- TV boom, really. And so I've, I've an interest in the, you know, Javanese shadow puppets and, you know, and traditional marionettes and the whole, the whole spectrum of puppetry um, does, does interest me. And, uh, and I can see a place for all of those different expressions of puppetry. Um, it, it's a bit like having diverse musical tastes. You know, some people only like, you know, Beyonce or whatever, uh, or Mozart or jazz or whatever. And I, you know, I, I cross the spectrum on all sorts of things, both in terms of music and, and I guess, puppets as well. Indeed, indeed. Uh, it's, 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 it's a good uh, interest to have, a good hobby. You know, if, yeah. if there's something you're passionate about, go and do it, go and read about it. You know, Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things my, my father said to me when I was a, a young teenager and doing shows at children's birthday parties. He said to me, you know, if you can, if you can turn something you love doing, you turn your hobby uh, into your career, then, then, then do it. You know, as an, an amateur, the definition of an amateur is somebody who does it for love. Uh, not for money, which is what a professional does it for. So if you can retain something of the the amateur, the love for what you're doing, even when you're being paid for it, then, you know, you're really, you're on a roll there. It doesn't get much better than that. Absolutely. And, you know, in your career, you've got such a long list of credits on your website. Just to fit everything in would be impossible unless you wanted to do a, a six-week-long interview. <laughs> um, but are there any shows that I haven't mentioned that you you want to talk about? Uh, oh, gosh. Um, I mean, one that was great fun. I think we only did three series of it was, and I mentioned it in relation to the um, Robert Band-Aid song, a TV show called Round the Bend, uh, directed by John Henderson. And um, that was four, three rats and a crocodile in a sewer running a newspaper. Um, and and that, was, that was a very uh, subversive um, children's TV program. And I guess it was coming out about the time when things like this magazine was, was very popular. Um, and this was an attempt, I think, to be a more child-friendly version of this. Um, so we had, um, yeah, it was the, the nearest we got to, I wouldn't say smutty jokes, but there were certainly sort of fart jokes and poo jokes and things in there that you generally didn't have on children's TV. And again, done with puppets, they got away with that sort of thing. We had, um, and we had a pop artist on every week, a pop singer. And so one week it would be Ky- Kylie Manure um, <laughs> singing Exceptionally Poo. And, um, and then we had Banana Rama, which were three banana skins. I, I can't remember the details of it now, but that was, that was a great show. And that's one that I, I still occasionally get people contacting me to ask me, you know, where can they get copies of it? 
because they remember, they don't remember it well, but they just have an image of it and remember it really making them laugh. And I, I don't have any, um, any copies of it, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But uh, that was, yeah, that was, that was a lovely show, really lovely show to work on. And I played Lucetti Braschetti, the Italian rat who was an artist, known as Lou Brush for short. Uh, so it was, yeah, happy days doing that. Good stuff, good stuff. And uh, not just the children's television, you've done a lot of work in film and, and adverts and stuff like that. And I didn't realise that you were the puppeteer for Churchill the dog. Yeah, yeah. So Churchill began life as a puppet and then became uh, CG animation. And then a number of years ago, and with the passing of time, I dread to think when it was, um, it was reinvented as a real animatronic, uh, so a physical puppet, um, appearing with Martin Clunes originally. Um, and I led the puppeteering team on that. It took four of us to operate the dog, and I did all the facial features and then called the other movements. So somebody else was doing, doing the head angle, somebody else was on ears, and somebody else was on the dog's front paws. But I did the eye blink, the eyes up and down, the nose, the eyebrows, and the mouth. Um, and then Martin left and Dawn French came on. And Dawn was hilarious to work with, as you can probably imagine. Um, and then they decided not to have any humans in, but to keep the dog, but with other animated elements. So there was one we did in a, in a, uh, a car breaking plant, where there was a, a car that had been you know, squashed into a cube, as they, they usually are when they've been uh, trashed. Uh, but the company made it so that the bumper could still move and the eyes could move, or the lights could move and, and turn into eyes on this uh, squashed up car. Um, and now I gather, unfortunately, they've now just decided to go back to having Churchill as a computer-generated animation again. So sadly, that's just very recently, um, that, that, that little job has come to an end. But so I must have done that for more than 10 years, of Churchill saying, um, oh, yes, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> a lovely character to do. And, and as with the spitting image thing, you know, lovely to do a character that everybody is familiar with. And, you know, almost everybody, if they said to me, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm doing a Churchill insurance ad, would say, you know, oh, yes, uh, within a, within a <laughs> heartbeat. So, yeah, part of part of British TV um, uh, history and culture and uh, legendary characters, I guess, really. Pretty much, pretty much been going... That, that yeah. character's been on probably over 20 years now, and yeah. <laughs> it's just ingrained in our memories. Um, the we, highlight for me from, from years back was um, bringing back Pinky and Perky, mm. um, who you'll be well too young to even know who they are. I know of them, I know of oh, them. Oh, good. And, you know, amazingly, Pinky and Perky performed in Las Vegas more times than Elvis and the Beatles, which is quite a phenomenal thought. And they topped the, um, the bill at the, the London Palladium. And, and I worked the original puppet with the original puppeteers, Jan and Buster Dalibor, who were the most delightful uh, Czech couple uh, who fled here during the war and then um, ended up putting a TV, a puppet, some puppets together and got a TV show. And this really sweet couple with these charming little puppets. And... Uh, yeah, I gave them a whole new lease of life. But it was very strange actually performing the actual puppets that I used to watch when I was a child. And that was that was quite that was quite a surreal experience, I must admit. Well, all good stuff. I could, then. I could go on and on as you can tell, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> 
Hey, it's good to hear these memories, and you know, it's it's an extraordinary career, one that's been you know that's been very rewarding, I hope, and one that's given you a lot of happy memories. Mm. Um, the one thing that I always ask towards the end of an interview is, you know, what's is your more recent work? What are you up to these days? I know that puppetry is kind of a sideline now, and yeah. now that you are um, an Anglican priest. Yeah, yeah. So I've been ordained uh, nineteen years, and for up until seven years ago, I was still puppeteering professionally as my full-time career and doing my church work in my spare time. But now that's that's flipped, and so I'm a full-time uh, rector of a church in the centre of London, in Soho. And so there isn't much opportunity for me to um, do the television work. I kept things like the Churchill Current and Fads going for a little bit, and a few other bits and pieces. But um, I do still puppeteer in church, and I've puppeteered in the pulpit of St Paul's Cathedral, to a congregation of two and a half thousand on several occasions, um, and recently uh, we had uh, the local, the Westminster schools, primary schools, all the children leaving year six and going on to secondary school, uh, all met for a service at St Margaret's Church in Westminster, which is the one between Westminster Abbey and Parliament Square, and I was the the invited preacher of that service for about 400 um, uh, 11 year olds, and there teachers and parents and whoever else and I puppeteered in that service and I created a bird puppet the lesser spotted pibblewop it was a very unusual bird and and basically told the story about how this bird who was a bit you know anxious about flying off and leaving the nest um, did fly off and discovered all the things that he'd gathered in his journey that enabled him to fly further than he had ever thought was possible. And it was really a parable for how the, the, the children who were about to go off to secondary school needn't be afraid because during all their time in primary school, they'd acquired all the skills that they needed to, to take them further and, uh, and to encourage them in their, in their journey through life. And, uh, and again, you know, it was lovely to be able to make this puppet, which flew down the, the nave of the church. And uh, again, it was just the power, even though I was clearly visible and operating this puppet as it interacted with the children, the children's eyes were all on the puppet. Nobody was interested in me. And uh, as people left at the end of the service, you know, a few people said thank you, but most people said, where's the bird? So, you know, the puppeteer is always in the background. And I think puppetry will always be in the background of my life, uh, no matter what else or else I'm <laughs> doing. It will always just be around. It's part of a part of who I am and uh, what makes me me, really, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely an interesting uh, story to tell people. You know, I'm a puppeteer. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. Do you still own any of the puppets from the shows that you worked on? I do have Nobby the Sheep and Jarvis the Monkey uh, upstairs in my in my workshop here. Um, I have a small puppet room. And, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're still here. Nobby's not looking so well. He's been, uh, He's had a little bit of daylight exposure. Um, because it was nice to have him out rather than just in a box. And people kept saying to me, you know, oh, can I see him? And unfortunately, his, his ears are drooping a little bit. So uh, if ever he was going to make another appearance, he would need a bit of cosmetic surgery, I think it's fair to say. But then uh, that, that comes to all of us at some point, I think. Indeed, indeed. Well, Simon, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and hear all your great stories about your wonderful career. Thank you, Jack. It's been an absolute pleasure as well. Thank you very much for inviting me to take part in this and uh, as you can tell uh, it has been a, a full and interesting career and I'm, I'm just delighted that other people still find it interesting so I'm happy to share um, aspects of my, my life and my story with them so thank you for that uh, no problem opportunity. thank you and uh, of course uh, tell people how they can find you online your website if, if you've got a Twitter or anything like that 
Um, just the website, um, so www.simonbuckley.co.uk. Easy so, to remember. Keep it simple. And there's a, there's a five-minute showreel on there as well of, uh, of clips of many of the shows that we've talked about today, including seeing Joachim Thwaite being booted out of the uh, Trolls Cave for <laughs> putting down the wrong cards when he was gambling. <laughs> Great clip, that one. Uh, Simon, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that, then check out all the other podcasts available. And next time, it will be the final episode of Series 2 of my podcast. Listen out for that. Listen out for that.